Hey, this is the Green Blues Show, the latest news, a bit of blues. Today, as sea levels rise on a warming earth, urban engineers defend coastlines in innovative ways. Another look at plastic pollution and scary microbes on the loose. Are multi-drug resistant bacteria a greater threat to humanity than global terrorism? Welcome to the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. It's so simple. Pour coffee into a plastic-coated paper cup at your local Java shop. Slip on a durable plastic cover, pay up, and head out. Just a few steps down the hall, over at the food court or in your car... Slip off that plastic cover, throw it away. Of all the one-time uses plastics get put to, none are as absurd as this. The Plastic Pollution Coalition aims to put an end to single-use plastics. A few interesting stats from their website. 17 million barrels of oil go into plastic production each year, Each day, Americans use and then throw out 88,000 tons of plastic products. No doubt, we Canadians are the same. Each year, up to a trillion plastic bags are filled, emptied, and chucked out. Many end up, along with other single-use plastic products, in the oceans. By 2050, listen to this, the mass of plastic in the world's oceans will exceed the mass of fish, Much of the plastic will be intact, along with countless particles in various states of indigestible fragmentation. The good news, countries, cities, and individual consumers are taking action. Just one example, in Queensland, Australia, a complete ban on single-use plastic bags will come into effect next summer. Down under and on top, The most crucial steps to end plastic pollution are being taken by individuals who tread slowly, compostable cup of coffee in hand, with no plastic cover. This is the Green Blue Show. I'm David Kattenberg. Yeah, and I get so cold 
looking to meet some lady, but I sure can't get bored. Can't get no flues at or anyone else. Guess I'll spend a lonely night about myself. Sitting in a movie in the very last row. I feel a funny feeling way down below. That's the reason. Got From his 1977 release, Annaline, Mike Bloomfield and Peepin' and Moanin' Blues. As Earth's oceans expand thermally and lockstep with atmospheric warming, American coastal cities are looking for ways to stave off floods. Who better to turn to for ideas than the Dutch? Over the past decade, Dutch engineers and planners have been devising nature-based flood control systems that are cheap and effective. Marcel Steves is Chair of Coastal Engineering in the Faculty of Civil Engineering and Geosciences at the Delft University of Technology in Delft, the Netherlands. I spoke with Steves in his office in Delft. We try to understand how these systems function in a natural way in order to use our insights into how they naturally behave to design protection which is say more sustainable and multifunctional for ecosystem now you've probably been uh, explained a lot about using uh, shallow forelands in front of dikes uh, where you would have say a marsh and if they're sediment available, the marsh will uh, will also rise with sea level uh, rise, but it will also allow you to make the dike behind it less high because the foreland will, of course, dissipate the energy. And if you have a, uh, uh, a region, uh, like in the Warden Sea and in the, in the southern estuaries, uh, where these systems ever existed and now less exists so you would like to bring them back it's not always that easy because I explained to you the term coastal squeeze but we also know the term estuarine squeeze many dikes have uh, really reclaimed the intertidal forelands Uh, and that is all in our quest to reclaim as much as land as possible for human use so can you explain that? This, how have dikes reclaimed? Well, the intertidal for, forelands uh, uh, used to be plenty in the See, south of ta- the Netherlands. You're talking about behind the dike. Yes. Uh, so the, the dike has been uh, put on the intertidal area close to the channel and has reclaimed the intertidal area. And the monks started doing that already uh, a thousand years ago. 
And so a lot of intertidal area has been removed. But had it not been removed, it would have uh, resulted in a... And had the dike be, uh, say, that far away from the channel, that there would be a healthy uh, ecosystem, uh, namely uh, an intertidal area, uh, first unvegetated and then vegetated in front of the dike, that would have been a much more resilient system than uh, putting the dike right at the channel boundary. And this is what I call estuarine squeeze. It's the very same as the example you gave of mangroves, mangrove forests, because the very same thing is happening there. They build dikes too close to, the, to say, the, the, the waterline in their quest to gain land, but they, they forget that the mangrove system needs some space to, to uh, be healthy. Uh, and to have this 15-year cycle in its, in its uh, life cycle. And, and it is itself buffering, uh, dissipating energy. Exactly. Buffering, buffering yeah. winds. Yeah. And if it can't buffer, it will, of course, deteriorate. Because if it cannot buffer, then the energy is too much and the bit of mangrove that's left is being uh, wiped out. So is this intertidal zone the sort that you'd see on Tesla with the snifter? Yes, exactly. Uh, but you see it at many places in the Bodensee, also on the, the Groningen and Friesland boundaries, but also on the inside of the uh, of the Wadden Islands uh, and in the Slufter, yeah. It's quite a paradigm shift for a, an engineer, a coastal engineer, to, to start thinking about designing his or her systems in such a way as to be in harmony with nature. Mm-hmm. It's not the sort of thing we at least in the United States and North America, think of like the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, just, we can do it with concrete and steel, and, uh, you know, bless them for all their hard work, but we can see some of the the bad things that have come from, from doing, engaging in that kind of hard engineering. Yes, Particularly yeah, when, yeah, you're, yeah. When, you're, when you're confronting the ocean, which is almost yeah, yeah. like yeah. limitless in its power. Yeah. Yeah, you're 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 very right. That that is a paradigm shift, uh, but I also think it is made possible because our technology to make soft protection uh, by nourishing our coastal systems uh, or creating intertidal areas in front of dikes, uh, our capabilities are now good enough to in order to do that, and that technology was not available, say. 20, 30 years ago. Hmm. So it's also the new technology that has allowed us to come up with these uh, solutions. And what are those new technologies? Especially uh, uh, against an affordable price to bring a cubic meter of sediment where you want it. That was very expensive in the old days uh, because we did not have uh, the good dredging technology and so it was simply too expensive. Or we couldn't even build it, in in the extent that we can do it now. The sand engine is uh, um, quite a unique um, project because um, it's never been done in the world. There are maybe slightly similar things, but no, it's a quite a unique project. Uh, and I think... Uh, it is the unique circumstances too that 
made it possible. What's the case? The case is that we had a quite foresighted minister of public works that time. The ministry is now called Infrastructure and Environment, uh, which is a good thing too because it's better to yeah it's better to have those ministries integrated. Uh, and that minister said um, this was around say 2005, 2004, 2005. Said, look, people, I realize that we need to look for, forward into the future to know how we have to deal with our coast. Especially because we promote multifunctional use, we cannot respond on a yearly basis. We have to, if we want multifunctional use, we have to look decades in the future. Because if we want a multifunctional development, it means that we are, have to use land use planning uh, and, and, and architecture, uh, uh, recreational uh, areas. Um, so if you would, an infrastructure, if you want all that to work together, we have to have a view for the longer term. So she said to uh, the, uh, the local provinces and to the, the coastal resorts, I have money for you when it comes to defending your coast. If you put money to it to fill in other functions, then we have a deal. And you can do that, the flood protection, by looking 50 years ahead from now. And you can project what you think will be your weak links in 50 years from now. And so we found something in the order of 10 weak links. One of them is where you visited in Scheveningen. You visited the works there, right? Another was near Terheide um, in this province. And uh, at Terheide, uh, or the whole stretch actually from Hoekervallen to Scheveningen, um, we, um, we need in 50 years' time on, at several places more sand to protect, to keep the protection level that is necessary. And uh, so the, 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 say, the governor of the province, uh, or we call it a gedeputeerde. Uh, I think it's older man in English. Uh, no, that's a wethouder. I don't know how you would call call it. <laughs> um, it it's uh, uh, say a provin uh, provincial government, mm -hmm. uh, a lady too, and uh, and she um, she wanted to accept that invitation, and uh, so she said, look. Maybe I should. No, maybe, yeah, I should tell you maybe a bit, a little bit more. Sure. She um, established an advisory committee, and in the advisory committee there were all stakeholders that she could think of, which was a very smart move. That went from NGOs to companies to academics. I was in it too. Uh, landscape architects. Uh, local local residents. Local residents. Uh, uh, municipalities, uh, NGOs, and she uh, uh, she said to the to the advisor group, 
please give me an advice what to do. And uh, there had been plans on the table for a substantial nourishment all along the section Hoekervallen to Scheveningen. Nourishment with sand. With sand. So widening the beach and the dunes. And some people said, that's what we need to do. But there was a lot of opposition, especially of uh, local people, because very few people saw the need to do that. And um, then that person from the local government uh, said, there's a problem. And she said to the advisory group, she said, Look, that's that's not going to work. Stakeholders are not are not accepting it. And then she asked three people from that group, and I was one of them, uh, to come up with a plan. And so we uh, we came up with a plan. So this is now two thousand and five. And we're talking two thousand and six. Okay. Yeah. And so uh, we said, we think you should build the sand engine because that will be much more easily accepted by stakeholders. Uh, it will be cheaper uh, because uh, we do a large amount in one go. The ecosystem will uh, find it more friendly because we will only cover a habitat at a very local uh, uh, position and the habitat around it will not uh, be buried under such a large load. And we also do it for 20 years. So instead of having to come back here every three to five years with a new nourishment, we do it in, in one go, and then nature will spread that sediment over that whole stretch between Hoek of Holland and, uh, and Scheveningen. So and before somebody would come along with lots of dump trucks and just dump sand on the beach, how would that work? Yeah, well, that would work with, uh, with dredgers that would, uh, depends, uh, it would depend exactly where you are. Uh, if you're very close to a harbor, you can bring the... the the, the training su- suction hopper dredger, uh, they're called. Uh, basically, they're ships with hoovers, and they hoover the sand from offshore. Vacuums, vacuum. Pumps. Yeah, vacuum pumps, and they they fill their 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 ship, and then they go to a position where they can connect to, uh, like with a, a water hose in your garden, where they can then connect to, and then use the the, the pipe to uh, to bring it uh, where it. Uh, uh, needs to be positioned. So the sand, also, in that case, the sand gets dr- dredged up from... Deeper water, okay. at least 20 kilometers offshore or at least 20 meters depth, so as not to impact on the coast itself. And then that gets brought to uh, to its position. Yeah. And so the same thing would now happen with the sand engine, except that you deposit all the sand... In one go, so we, uh, for, we leave it for 20 years... Approximately 1 million cubic meter per year will be diffused uh, to both sides, 400,000 to the south and and 600,000 cubic meters to the north. And then what happens? And in the end, it will just diffuse totally out and it will feed the whole coastal system between Hoekervallend and Schreuningen. Marcel Steves is chair of coastal engineering in the Faculty of Civil Engineering and Geosciences at the Delft University of Technology in Delft, the Netherlands. Here's a slice of Elmore James. The sun is shining. The sun is shining. All that's raining. 
slide guitar master Elmore James, The Sun is Shining, recorded at Chess Records in Chicago in April 1960. Okay, plastics. The ultimate expression of humanity's thirst for things. Aside from the foods we eat and beverages we drink, virtually everything we use in our daily lives, the packages we buy them in, are made of plastic. If recent news reports are to be believed, even our food and water is contaminated. Peter Kershaw is the chair of an expert group providing advice to the United Nations about plastic and other forms of pollution in the world's oceans. I asked Peter Kershaw about plastic microfibers and the threat they pose to human health and marine ecosystems. They're simply small small pieces of plastic. Um, there's nothing magical about them. Um, there's been a sort of operational definition of anything with a diameter of less than five millimeters, but it's but basically they're they're part of a size range which goes from enormous objects like derelict fishing nets, which might be several kilometers long, made of plastic, uh, right down to things in the nano size ranges. Um, and microplastics just occupy a slot in the in the um, t- towards one end of that of that size distribution, and they are of interest because that's the sort of size range which organisms will tend to ingest. Um, generally, with smaller sized objects, you have higher surface areas. Um, and so if it, if it material absorbs onto it, uh, there's a greater tendency to absorb with, with smaller grain sizes. Um, and then there's the potential for compounds within those microplastics to be uh, released into the, in, into the gut of the organism and into the, into the organism, which may affect the organism and potentially, or theoretically, if it's something that we eat, um, then there's a potential for it affecting human health. It's certainly something you, you know, you, one wishes to uh, to look at in terms of a risk assessment. These are t- toxic organics. Uh, yes, yes. I mean, some some of the compounds um, are intrinsic to the plastic. So uh, some durable plastics, the sort of things you make. Uh, mobile phones out of for example will have flame retardants in um that's that's to protect you when you're using it um but those compounds they tend to be released from the plastic they're not held terribly strongly within the plastic and they will tend to be released and quite a lot of these compounds they're endocrine disruptors so they they have the potential for um, affecting the um, the life cycle of, of organisms which which, um, which 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 ingest them, and potentially can affect uh, human development as well. And I've read that uh, bacteria, microorganisms, adhere to to microplastics. Yeah, um, the I mean, uh, as soon as you put something in the ocean, whatever it is, uh, whether it's a um, the hull of a boat or a 
piece of plastic or a log, um, things will tend to start growing on it. And, um, and that then gives you the potential for transferring organisms from one part of the ocean to another. Now, if those materials are sort of natural, um, like pieces of wood or leaves, or stems of plants, they will tend to um, they will tend to just disintegrate rot um, relatively quickly. Uh, the thing with plastics is, of course, that they don't. They're durable, and so you, you then end up with um, a host of little rafts, which then can carry uh, organisms of all sorts of sizes. And indeed, uh, people are starting to find now um, in the middle of the Atlantic, for example, um, so bacteria from uh, from fibrios. It's a type of bacteria which um, has some very unpleasant diseases associated with them. So it is a concern. And um, I was, in fact, I was at a meeting last week when they were talking about the effects of the um, 2011 Japanese tsunami and the enormous amount of material which was released into the sea by the tsunami and how a lot of that crossed the Pacific. And the, and the point of this study was to assess the quantities of, um, not just the quantities of plastic which arrived on the coasts of North America, but what was attached to them. And they found very many species which were from Japanese waters, which had survived um, the, the, the passage across the Pacific, which surprised, I mean, that was against received wisdom, that the received wisdom was that they would, they would have perished en route because they moved into different, um, different conditions, temperature and so forth, but they didn't. Um, and so that's, people have had to now reassess um, the, the, the ability of organisms to hitchhike. And uh, that's certainly going to be a, an issue. Um, we, well, it's going to remain an issue for a long time, I think. And you, you haven't mentioned the uh, plastic resin pellets or plastic particles used in, uh, in various industrial applications. I mean, they're little plastic beads and toothpaste and shower gel. Uh, and... Oh, yeah. There's, 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 you know, we, we tend to divide up into what we call primary microplastics and secondary secondary just bits of larger items which are broken down primary where it's, it's something's being deliberately manufactured for a purpose and um uh, and yeah you get quite a lot of these uh, in in sort of domestic and industrial cleaning products um uh it's the sort of thing that in 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 Previous generations, you might have used ground-up almond nuts or some or sand or something like that. Just gives you that extra scrubbing power. Uh, and indeed, in in toothpaste and facial scrubs and things like that, and really quite unnecessary. Um, and there is there is a move in quite a lot of countries now to to phase out out of some products. Um, the other type, though, is the plastics industry, when they make plastics and they move them around the world to different facilities to perhaps uh, remix them, change the composition, or they send them to a, a factory for manufacturing into, into some plastic products, 
they, they, they transport them around as these cylindrical or, or, or circular pellets of about five millimeter diameter. And uh, they tend to get lost by transshipments um, when they get offloaded at ports or if there's a container goes overboard a ship. So you find quite a lot of that sort of material um, in the ocean as well. So now I've, I've, there have been stories recently in the media about uh, plastic microfibers uh, present in, in uh, ubiquitous in drinking water in the United States and, and elsewhere and in 24, uh, 24 pro- beers uh, sold in Germany <laughs> and, and in salt, uh, yeah. and in salt, yeah, yeah. right? Sea yeah, salt. yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, these, these fibers, microfibers, they're ubiquitous, they're everywhere. Um, they, 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 they most likely are, and um, but of course, I mean, don't forget that there's also fibers of cotton and and paper and and so forth, cellulose fibers um, around as well. I mean, any any uh, any any manufactured fiber um, will tend to be shed from our clothing and uh, and so forth. So it, it's 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 not surprising, and in fact, you know, there's. There's, there's quite an issue when you're taking samples and analyzing them to make sure that you don't contaminate them from fibers on your on your clothing in particular and fibers in in the air so um the fact that you find them in in beer and salt isn't isn't that surprising um that the question is is at what point should you be concerned about it? At what point may it, uh, it represent some form of risk? Uh, and if you're talking about a very few fibres in, 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 a, in a large volume, then it's, um, I think you have to keep that, in, in that risk in proportion. What should be done about uh, microplastic <laughs> pollution? Maybe, yeah. the, you know, the, 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 the largest take-home message is that the, the presence, the ubiquity of plastic microfibers in the environment, however inert they may be, they, they're in a sense a, a signature, they're an indication, um, a dramatic indication of the impact that humans are having on, on the biosphere and, and the mass of materials that we're, we're putting well, into the, yeah, into the I, system. I'm a, yeah, unfortunately, we leave our footprint wherever we go. And... Um, in the remotest part of the planet, we, we, we find our signature, whether that's from atmospheric deposits, deposition of, of pesticides up in the Arctic or, or, um, or noise, uh, or in this case, plastics. I don't think there is, you know, there's, there's no one um, simple message. I think it's, it has to be something which is sort of multi-sectoral. Um, lots of different, you know, plastics are now so ubiquitous in our lives that you have to look at how we're using them to clothe ourselves, uh, how we use them for transport, how we use them for for packaging. Um, that there are there are some. If you look at what the the, the sort of categories of litter we find in in the ocean, one of the most frequent is is from single-use packaging. So whether that's plastic bottles or, or, or containers for putting fast food in or straws, a whole range of stuff like that. And that's something which should be, it, that, that's something 
which should be relatively easy to deal with. I mean, it's, it's, it's not, it's complicated, but you know, that doesn't need to go there, doesn't need to be in, in the ocean at all. Where, what, one of some of the things which are more difficult are when you get onto things like synthetic fibres, uh, because, you know, people need clothing. Um, uh, clothing ma- made with artificial fibres is, is, is very popular, it's quite cheap. Um, and so you can't stop people wearing it. What you have to do then is be a bit clever about perhaps how you uh, design the, the, the fibres themselves so they don't shed as much, how you wash them whether you can put filters onto washing machines uh, and, and uh, filters uh, into wastewater treatment, etc. Bearing in mind that most of the population on the planet uh, doesn't, is, doesn't have access to proper sanitation. So, um, you know, we may sort it out in California or, or Western Europe, but it doesn't mean to say that a solution in one part of the world is going to work in another. Um, there are some much bigger issues to do with, um, you know, poverty reduction and, and development. So there are the places in West Africa, for example, where they, they use single-use plastic bags for, for drinking water um, because that's their only source of drinking water. So you can't ban them, um, but then there's nowhere to put the bag when they're finished using it. So it goes in the storm drain, gets washed out to sea. You know, th- these are these are complicated problems but something that it should not be beyond the wit of 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 humankind to to tackle it's not like ocean acidification a global warming it's something where you can take actions um at lots of different scales and i i i I understood you know you, you you teach students i mean the that there are lots of areas there for innovation, uh, for imagination, um, for active, you know, um, people getting active about it. So it is something that we should be able to sort out because once it's in the ocean, there's very little you can do about it. Um, I mean, that is a take-home message that you really got to stop stuff going into the ocean. You have to question whether we always need to use plastics and how we use them. We have to question how we dispose of them. And really, we ought to be aiming towards a much more um, sort of closed-loop system. So if you use it, it goes back into the system. It doesn't leak out. It doesn't escape. It doesn't go to landfill. Um, and, And we don't waste resources like that. But there's nothing quite as absurd in my mind as the person who and I've done it in the past, I don't do it anymore, but going to get a cup of coffee and, you know, instinctively putting a little plastic cover on top of your cup of paper cup of coffee and walking 10 feet and taking the plastic cover off and yes. then it's throwing it into the garbage. Yes, I mean, absolutely. there's nothing more, more absurdly single-use, extremely brief single-use as that. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, coffee cups, you know, although they may look like they're made of cardboard, they often have a layer of plastic inside. So um, it, it can become very difficult to recycle. So, you know, it's, and, and you know, we don't need most of the time, you know, especially if you're sitting down in a cafe or something, you don't need it like that. You know, there's, there's, there's different ways of doing it. Uh, um, 
and so, you know, I get your students to act, you know, insist on a mug. Uh, don't use straws. You know, <laughs> it's, it's a start, but it's, um, I think until people change their attitude about how we use plastics, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be difficult to, um, to get the changes through. Peter Kershaw, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Pleasure. Peter Kershaw is the chairman of the Joint Group of Experts on the Scientific Aspects of Marine Environmental Protection, GAZAMP, an advisory body to the United Nations. You're listening to The Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. Optimistic note from the late, great Reverend Gary Davis. There's a bright side somewhere. Davis was a mature 40 when he departed his South Carolina home in the mid-1930s, two years after his ordainment as a minister of the gospel. Davis toured with Blind Boy Fuller, then took up residence on the streets of Harlem among New York City's most famous and gifted street performers, The Reverend Gary Davis departed this world for the brighter side in 1972. 
He's busking up there now, somewhere, alongside fellow guitar virtuosos Blind Willie Johnson, Blind Lemon Jefferson, and Blind Blake. This is the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. On the topic of antibiotics, thanks to miracle drugs like penicillin, infectious disease has been largely eliminated as a cause of death in the so-called developed world. In biology, however, success has a funny way of breeding failure. The widespread use and misuse of antibiotics has yielded an ugly crop of pathogens resistant to antibiotics. So-called superbugs scoff at everything we throw at them. According to the U.S. Center for Disease Control, an estimated 2 million Americans get infected by antibiotic-resistant bacteria each year. Among these, multidrug-resistant bugs no antibiotic can arrest. An estimated 50,000 North Americans and Europeans die annually from infections by one or another of some 18 drug-resistant bacterial species. Stats from the Global South are scarier. Listen to this. I think we all hear the stories, roll our eyes, and think to ourselves, good God, somebody's gone off the deep end. However, there are more and more incidences that we hear where, you know, a person goes to a hospital and then uh, they unfortunately never come back because uh, they end up picking one of those infections and they die. There's just not a single drug that can be uh, used to treat such infections. We're only a plane ride away from anywhere else in the planet and microbes exchange genes horizontally, not just vertically. It's very clear that if you have antibiotics in low enough concentration where the organism doesn't die, that's how you get the spread of resistance. The trash heap of, of antibiotic discovery over the last 20 years is littered with compounds that haven't made the cut. Bacteria are very sophisticated, very old, very wily creatures. We fail to appreciate just how complex these organisms are. I'm Ayush Kumar. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Microbiology here at the University of Manitoba. And uh, my primary interest is looking at the molecular mechanisms of multidrug resistance in bacteria. I think it's a significant threat, and uh, I'm not the only one to think that way because uh, uh, if you follow news report for, last, say, last couple of years, uh, agencies like WHO uh, has said that this is probably one of the one of the biggest threats to human health. Uh, Sally Davis, who's uh, the chief health officer in uh, in UK, has uh, has actually mentioned that antibiotic resistance is a bigger threat than terrorism. And 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 there are estimates that say that by 2050, resistant infections will be causing more deaths than cancer does today. Uh, a couple of years ago, CDC re released uh, their most comprehensive report on antibiotic resistance, and their estimate was uh, uh, 23,000 deaths every year from resistant infections. I would think that uh, based on what we see from the U.S. Uh, in terms of data, uh, Canadian data would be probably very similar. The definition of multidrug resistance is if you have an organism that is resistant to three different classes of antibiotics. So these antibiotics, they are primarily divided into different classes based on 
what their mode of action is or what their target is uh, within the bacterial cell. MRSA is one example, and we are starting to see MRSA actually uh, incidences of MRSA being very, very high. C. diff, uh, uh, Clostridium difficile that uh, causes uh, deadly form of diarrhea. We know that resistant infections, whenever there is an outbreak, we actually see a fairly high uh, uh, proportion of those organisms being resistant to uh, antibiotics as well. And then uh, uh, there was a recent report about tuberculosis where they reported presence of totally drug-resistant uh, mycobacterium tuberculosis, the organism that causes TB, uh, which was resistant to every single drug. My name is Jerry Wright. I'm the director of the Michael DeGroote Institute for Infectious Disease Research here at McMaster University. I'm also a professor in the Department of Biochemistry and Biomedical Sciences. I've been working in the area of antibiotics for a quarter century now. Um, we're really interested in um, how antibiotic resistance develops, what its mechanisms are, and in particular how to then use that information to overcome it. This is a very unique part of medicine, right? You're dealing with diseases that evolve, the organisms that cause the disease. The blood pressure medicine that you take 30 years ago is still working today because you haven't evolved to change around, to, to circumvent that blood pressure medicine or your cholesterol-lowering agent. Antibiotics are a completely different story. While you're getting treatment, the bacteria are evolving. For certain bacteria, right, right now, there is nothing you can do other than what we used to do in 1920, which is to wait it out. The good news is right now there's not a lot of them. The bad news is, is that there's some of them. <laughs> and, not, and some of them, you know, the history of antibiotic resistance and use around the world has been if you find it one place, we're only a plane ride away from anywhere around the world, so it's not too hard to get it around. That's one of the issues with medical tourism. Somebody wants to have a plastic surgery procedure or an orthopedic procedure, and they travel to another country where they can get the procedure done more quickly, and ultimately they may acquire uh, an unwelcome traveler with them, and that poses challenges for us in terms of how we manage this individual. I'm John Embill, one of the infectious disease consultants at the University of Manitoba and the medical director for the Infection Prevention Control Program for the Winnipeg Regional Health Authority. I recently saw a lady who had gone to a, 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 another country overseas to have a, a, a knee replacement. She acquired a, uh, an infection in that country with an organism that is highly antibiotic resistant. So now we're introducing microorganisms acquired in developing nations to our healthcare facilities. And what can happen in, in that scenario is that those organisms can spread throughout our healthcare facilities. We're now faced with a scenario where maybe we are heading towards a potential doomsday, but hopefully not. I'm Ayush Kumar. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Microbiology here at the University of Manitoba. These organisms, unfortunately, can spread really fast, uh, uh, and especially in today's world, where you can actually go around the world within 24 hours. So uh, if somebody is carrying these organisms, and if these organisms, they are smart because they carry these resistance genes on genetic elements, which can be easily uh, shared with other organisms. Uh, and if you have uh, good enough, strong enough selective pressure 
where you're forcing an organism to share these genes with each other, then the spread is quite fast. There was a resistance gene reported uh, about, uh, about 10 years ago now um, in India, it was uh, called New Delhi beta uh, metallo uh, beta lactamase, or NDM1, um, and uh, turns out that now you can find NDM1 in any part of the world. So um, uh, we don't know if it existed there, but it was definitely spreading from India. Uh, it appears. I'm Eric Brown, a professor of uh, biochemistry and biomedical sciences here at McMaster, uh, and a member of the Michael G. DeGroote Institute for Infectious Disease Research. We're, uh, we're very interested in my lab in, in new approaches to antibiotic drug discovery. Uh, we're big on, on methodology that has to, uh, has to do with bacterial genetics, chemical biology, bacterial physiology. For bacteria, this is a numbers game, right? They, um, they grow and divide to create enormous numbers of individuals and um, by sheer chance uh, they're, um, and the fact that they don't faithfully completely and properly replicate their genetic information um, they're making the odd mistake. Um, turns out that numbers on the order of say one in ten million or so um, uh, individuals would, would be spontaneously resistant um, to, uh, to an antibiotic that say that was targeting a specific target. My name is Jerry Wright. I'm the director of the Michael DeGroote Institute for Infectious Disease Research here at McMaster University. It's antibiotic use promotes resistance. That's the thing. Right? <laughs> the more you use it, the more you select. That's the selective evolutionary pressure for the, either the evolution of of resistance mechanisms, or more importantly in a hospital, the acquisition of resistance mechanisms. Very quickly you can have one organism that has found a, a way to overcome a, 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 an antibiotic, and it can share that information to the entire population. So the more antibiotics you use, like in an ICU or like on a farm, the more chances you have of that happening. So use of antibiotics, uh, definitely, that's one of the triggers for, for the spread and selection of multidrug resistance. And one thing that we actually forget about the use of antibiotics is that in developed countries like Canada and US, 80% of antibiotics that are produced are used in non, for non-human practices. So agriculture as growth promoters in animals, so, uh, You're saying 80% of the antibiotics that get prescribed in Canada are being prescribed in the livestock industry? They're not being prescribed, they're being used. That's the problem because with livestock industry for agriculture use, you don't really need the kind of prescription you would for human use, for uh, treatment of infections in humans. So that's the problem. That's almost an unregulated part of um, uh, side of story when, when it comes to usage of, um, or poorly regulated side of stories when it comes to usage of antibiotics. We, we, we've seen uh, some of our first antimicrobial resistant organisms arising from animal husbandry. Um, we saw vancomycin resistant strains of enterococcus arising from chickens. And f uh, far more antibiotics are used to, 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 to dose animals than are being used to, to, on, on human beings. And, and the, the tonnage of antibiotics in animal husbandry exceeds that which is for, for human consumption.
So the potential for generating antibiotic-resistant strains is enormous. It's huge. If you step back for a second and you, and you ask, well, what happens if we never discover another new antibiotic? How do you preserve the ones that we have in the face of resistance? And combinations is one way to do it. And one way to combine things, not just is to combine antibiotics with molecules that block resistance. Those molecules in and of themselves aren't antibacterial. They just have an activity against the resistance mechanism. So in other words, block their ability to pump the antibiotic out. Exactly, exactly. Or, do, or whatever mechanism of resistance. And so in my lab, because we've been studying resistance for 25 years, we said, well, why don't we just systematically start looking for inhibitors of resistance? And so we've developed a collection here of, of natural product producing microbes. We're screening those for molecules that block resistance. It's a zoo. We have, we have a, a lovely zoo in our freezer. And so one molecule that we've, we discovered has a terrible name. Uh, it's called Aspergillum marasmine. It comes from a fungus that uh, we uh, collected in a soil sample from New Brunswick. It turns out that that molecule blocks the activity of uh, beta-lactam inactivating enzyme um, called NDM1, which emerged as a result of extensive drug use in the Indian subcontinent probably, about six years ago. Within that six years, it spread to every country on the globe. Multiple different bacteria have it, threatening our use of that whole class of antibiotic. So aspergillum marasmine blocks that activity. And it blocks that activity in a Petri dish, and it blocks that activity in a mouse bottle. And it seems to be pretty non-toxic. And so, yeah, it might have legs to actually get into human clinical trials in the next year or so. One of the questions that people who work on antibiotic resistance or people who look at these problems is, uh, are we already in post-antibiotic era or is it just coming very soon? Is it getting more challenging? The answer is, of course, it's getting more challenging because we have uh, more clever microorganisms and fewer agents that are effective against these microorganisms. So what people can do is engage common sense. And that common sense entails good attention to hand cleaning, not going off the deep end, buying every cleanser known to man to sterilize their houses, because that's just not possible. And they actually promote the development of antibiotic resistance. Sure. Like triclosan. And so then our thought is soap and water for cleaning your hands and just run-of-the-mill non-antimicrobial cleansers in the household because we really don't know the ecological impact of agents such as triclosan because triclosan has found itself in everything. Um, I can't imagine the ecological impact of an antimicrobial impregnated play structure for kids or having the handles on uh, shopping carts impregnated with antimicrobial agents. It sounds like an interesting concept, but what's the downstream complication? It's bewildering. That's it for today's edition of the Green Blues Show. The latest news, a bit of blues. Listen to us on CKUW 95.9 FM. 
University of Winnipeg Radio. Subscribe to our podcast at greenplanetmonitor.net. The Green Blues Show is created by Earth Chronicle Productions in cooperation with CKUW 95.9 FM. We are both based in Winnipeg, Canada. I'm David Kattenberg. Join me again next time. Bye-bye. Thank you.